May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Las Vegas City Councilman David Regelman told ABC News of um, resident uh, Kenneth Epstein that his home was, and I quote, one of the worst cases of hoarding that anyone has ever seen. Apparently, Mr. Epstein lived in a small two-bedroom apartment with his mother, and when his mother passed away, um, he lived there for himself. He had been hoarding for some time, but once that she be- passed away, he, his uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder kind of went into high gear and began to, to hoard more and more. Um, one of the things that the councilman, Mr. Riggleman, said of Mr. Epstein was that his hoarding was unique in this way, and that many hoarders, well, they would, like, stack things up, even up to the ceiling, but they would leave paths for themselves to walk through the house. But Mr. Epstein apparently did not. He just simply began to stack things up so high that the only way to get from one part of the house to the other was literally to climb over the mountains of, of junk that he had had in his house. Um, and so, naturally, residents began to, uh, to complain. They complained of foul odors, of the unsightliness of it. And, of course, they're worried about the safety of Mr. Epstein. And so a court order was reached, and city officials went to the home. But even to get into the home, they had to literally remove the door from its hinges because they couldn't open the door. There was just so much stuff inside. They removed five refrigerators, and they were all filled with rotten food. Um, they removed from the house um, five dead cats and nine living ones. And 30, 30 truckloads from a two-bedroom apartment, 30 truckloads of, of belongings um, they hauled away and took to the dump. Thankfully, they saw Mr. Epstein's condition as clinical, not criminal, and so they're working to get him help. Um, but, you know, this is a, a serious issue, and, and I don't bring it up this morning to poke fun at Mr. Epstein, not at all. Um, I see it as a mental illness and um, somebody who needs help, and, uh, and I, I pray that he gets it. But I still look at, as you probably do, if you've ever seen that show Hoarders on television or read about articles like the ones I just told you about, you see these things and you say to the, yourself, like, just throw it away, you know? Just let it go. You don't need. You do not need that newspaper. I, you, you know, Tuesday the third uh, of January, not an important newspaper. Let it go. There's nothing to keep there. And you wonder why can't they just get rid of it? You know, pay a neighborhood kid a few bucks. He'll come down and carry the stuff away. Why won't they just get rid of the stuff? And then I ask myself. And why won't you get rid of your stuff? You know, I don't, I'm not a hoarder, but I might verging on the area of pack readiness, you know. Why do you hold on to your stuff? And it occurs to me that many of us surround ourselves with stuff, and it's all the wrong stuff. Um, I remember this line in the movie Goodwill Hunting. Um, this, this young man is a troubled young man, but he's brilliant, and so they take him to different psychologists, and he eventually winds up with this one psychologist who's played by Robin Williams, and, and he's in his office, and he's kind of looking at his bookshelves, and he says, you people amaze me. You surround yourself with books, and they're all the wrong books. And, you know, I, I don't know how many times, and I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but I've been in minister's office, and I looked around, and I say to myself, you surround yourself with books, and they're all the wrong books. <laughs> you know, read the right books. This is what we do, don't we? We surround ourselves with all the wrong stuff. How's the Atlantis Morissette song go? Like, 
10,000 spoons when all I need is a knife. You know, this is what we have. We have all the wrong stuff around us. So much of it. And it works out in our spiritual lives, too. In our spiritual lives, we oftentimes fill it with a lot of stuff. And oftentimes, it's the wrong stuff. Um, We think it'll make us smarter or wiser or holier or more devout or whatever. And a lot of times, it's good stuff. It's, uh, It's sermons and teachings and DVDs and books and classes and all that sort of thing. But that's still not the right stuff. And maybe you're sitting there today and you think, all right, well, Mr. Smarty Pants, tell me, then what is the right stuff? I'm glad you asked. Because the words of Jesus tell us about what the right things, or at least what the priority things are, secondary and tertiary and however you say fortiary things, (laughs) those are other issues, but he does tell us about the primary. In fact, he gathers all of his friends who had remained after the end of his life, his death, his resurrection, and he's about to ascend into heaven, and he tells them, I have work for you to do. You have a big job to do. I want you to take my words. I want you to be my witnesses in this neighborhood, the following neighborhoods, and into the very ends of the earth. But before that, I want you to make sure you have the right stuff. Let me read to you from the uh, Acts of the Apostles chapter 1. This is not in your, in your bulletin, but just listen to me. While, he, while staying with them, Jesus ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wait here. You have a big job to do, but wait here. You have an enormous task, but wait for this. Now, I don't know if this ever happens to you at work. Um, you know, the boss comes up and says, hey, look, I've got this enormous project. It's going to take overtime. It's going to take weekends. It's going to take nights. You're going to have a lot to do. You have, you know, this is a big, important project. Maybe the most important of your career. And the first thing you do is, mm, under your breath, right? And, and then the second thing you do is like, what's wrong with Nancy? Why can't she do it? Um, you know, <laughs> what's wrong with Bill? Is he, is he sitting over there twiddling his thumbs? You know, you, you think all these things. But then you realize a journey of 10,000 steps begins with one, Right? Time to get to work. If I'm ever going to move this mountain, I'm going to move it a stone at a time. I've got to get this done. Jesus has given his disciples a Herculean task. Go to the edge of the earth. Be my witnesses. But before you do that, wait for this one essential tool. Wait for this one essential reality in your life. Verse 8 of chapter 1, he says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. The last words of Jesus to his disciples are, Wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, they do. And in the lesson that was read today, you remember it says, and suddenly there came from heaven. So they're all gathered in this room. And suddenly there came from heaven on the day of Pentecost, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And as divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Three phenomena that I see 
three phenomena that I see in, in this passage right here that I think are important and speak about the, the essence of receiving the Holy Spirit. First, Luke says there was a sound. Did you hear that? There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't a mighty rushing wind. There wasn't an actual wind. It was, Luke says very specifically, it was like, hostera in Greek, it was like a mighty rushing wind. There was this sound of wind-like force. I don't know if you've ever been in a strong windstorm, a hurricane or a tornado, or been near one, but it is terrifying. Um, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and and just uh, just a few miles from us, there was this uh, massive hurricane in Xenia. Poor Xenia, been hit twice by hurricanes. You know, they, 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 thirty years later, they got another one. Um, but this was a, a serious, I, I believe, F five hurricane that went through Xenia in like 1974. I was five years old. Do the math. Anyway, so I was five years old. I mean, and I, my uncle worked in Xenia, and so I remember. My mother and my aunt grabbing us boys afterward and, you know, we're rushing to Xenia because he was there at the time. And trees just totally destroyed. Homes destroyed. Cars that had been moved. If you've ever seen the force of a tornado, you know that there is great power. And I think that what Luke is trying to get people to understand is, trying to get us to understand, is that the Holy Spirit comes with this incredible power. An enormous amount of power. I don't know how strong the strongest person in this room is. I know who it's not. <laughs> okay, but I have a few of you I see around here that, all right, you're probably, but if we got outside of this room and talked about the strongest person in the state of Ohio, or maybe the strongest person in the United States, or what if we went to the strongest person on the entire planet? They have this strongest person in the world contest where these people like, do all these different things. They have to lift 1,100 pounds over their head. They have to they have to throw kegs of beer over there, whatever, this sort of thing. But eventually they find the strongest person. And these people are enormous. I mean, they are just huge. But imagine the strongest person in the world. And, 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 and I'm sorry, probably he, he has to lift um, this amount of weight. Uh, let's just say he, he could lift, you know, 1,500 pounds. And everybody lifted 1,500 pounds, and then he did 1,501, and and he was the only one who could do 1,501. He can't lift 1,502. There comes a point where strength reaches its finite capacity. Human strength is always finite. And that's true whether we're talking about physical strength or emotional strength or spiritual strength or whatever kind of uh, strength that you want to talk about, but not so with God. The Holy Spirit brings an infinite capacity for strength and power. The Holy Spirit brings power. Why does Jesus tell his disciples, wait here? Because he knows that if they try to do it on their own, they're going to run out of strength. They're going to run out of power. But with the Holy Spirit, they will have all that they need. The second thing that happens is Luke says there are divided tongues like fire. Again, Not divided tongues of fire, but like fire. It's like this fire that comes down upon the disciples. Throughout the Bible, fire is often used as a a symbol of purity or God's purifying work. Uh, Perhaps you remember the story in Isaiah chapter 6 
Isaiah the prophet says in the day that uh, King Uzziah died, I found myself in the temple. I think Isaiah has this, this vision, this mystical vision. And, and he says he becomes aware of the presence of God and he, and he falls down on his face. He can't believe, you know, that he, this uh, mortal man, this sinful man in the presence of, of a holy God. And he just says, woe is me, I'm undone. You know, I, I live among a, a people of unclean lips and I have unclean lips. Well, then listen to what Isaiah says. And then the foundations of the threshold shook. And he says these, these two, uh, these, um, uh, these cherub, these, uh, seraphim, rather, um, fly around like these angels. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and a voice of him who called filled the house with smoke. And I said, Woe, am I, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the altar, a burning, flaming coal. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The fiery coal from around the altar, he sees, and it touches him, and, and he's cleaned, he's purified. In the prophet Malachi, the prophet says, um, predicts the coming of the Messiah. And, and, and speaking for God, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, said the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like, listen to this, a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. A refiner's fire. Um, those who understand the work of metals, this is a, this is taking pure metals that are that have like rock and um, other materials in them. Like you take gold, you you you've, you know kind of however you do it, you've mined out some gold and there's some rock that's around it. And what you do is you put it in a pot and you burn it hot, hot until it's a liquid. And then the heavy metals will, will sink to the bottom and the top is like the impurities and, and the refiner will, will skim those off and heat it up again until all the impurities are gone. This is the image that Malachi gives. Jesus in Luke's gospel, he says, as people were in expectation and all were questioning John the Baptist, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than, than I is coming. The straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, listen, and with fire. Fire consumes worthless material. Fire purifies precious material. You and I are to God precious material. The coming of the Holy Spirit and coming with fire, as in the day of Pentecost, is a coming of a purification. It is to purify the people of God. To give them uh, the 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 mind of Christ and and the the um, the the the, clean, the the holiness of Christ that He comes and brings that to us. This is a sanctifying, as I said last week, a sanctifying fire. It brings needed purity. We begin every mass with this collect for purity. It used to be prayed in the back that the the priest would pray this for the people. And then it moved out into the service so that you notice there's not the, the Lord be with you uh, and also with, with your spirit um, part there. It's, it used to be prayed in the back and now it's prayed at the beginning. Almighty God to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secret is hid. What do we ask? 
Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Cleanse. Make them clean. How? Through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. The inspiriting of your Holy Spirit. That we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. This is what we pray for, that, that we would have this, in, this inspirited fire of purity from the Holy Spirit. Third, third phenomena happens, and that is that the, the, the people gathered, the disciples gathered, begin to speak in other tongues. Heteros glossias. The other tongues. We're speaking with other languages. Glossadia, some call it. I don't see this as evidence of power. Power itself, the, the wind was evidence of the power. The other languages has a different, I think, um, uh, motif. Suppose that um, we're all gathered here uh, afterward in coffee hour, and you suddenly start speaking in Portuguese, having never learned Portuguese. It's an actual language, you might say. I'm speaking a new language. It's not new. It's just new to you, right? I'm speaking this new language, Portuguese. This is what happens to the apostles. They begin speaking in actual languages, languages that are recognized. You remember the people say, how are these Galileans speaking in all these languages? I think that's sort of a a derisive term about Galileans, but it's amazing to the listeners that they hear them in their own languages. What is the point of this? Well, if you remember why Scripture says we have different languages, it'll help. In Genesis chapter 11, we have this Tower of Babel, right? And the Lord looks upon it, and he realizes that, that humans have great intellect and ability that he has given them. And now that they are corrupted by evil, if they get together and use this collective force of evil, there is almost no stopping the evil that can be achieved. And so God actually confuses the language. Conf- difference of language is a gift to humanity to thwart evil plans. We can't communicate. Last year when I was in Spain, I went to this, I'm like way up in northern Spain. I realized what it's like to be in a place where you don't speak the language. You know, I couldn't understand anything. And it's funny because the things that I always thought about Americans, if we don't, if somebody doesn't understand us, do you know how we make ourselves more plainly known? We speak louder. <laughs> you owe me. Stick an O on the end of every word. Um, so I'm in this hotel, like generously called a hotel, in northern Spain, and the woman spoke not a word, not a single word of English. And my five words of Spanish were not enough to get me anything other than the bathroom or something to drink. Um, and so we're standing there, and she's trying to check me in. And she begins to get louder, you know, like, I still don't get it, you know, it just isn't working. Our, our different languages were a gift of God to, to, to help to, to curb the role of evil in the world. But look in Acts chapter 2, following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the gift of languages is given to the church to bring people together in goodness. It's given to bring people together in unity, not to make uh, a homogeneous community, but but to make a unity, a a, a unity of all peoples. Not like the United Nations, not meant just to prevent war, but to bring about real, genuine unity in the Holy Spirit. Now, of these three phenomena, I I mean, a a whole day could be spent on any one of them, and, and I can't do that, 
But I, I do think it's important that we look at these theological motifs. Because without power and purity and unity, we cannot be the church. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot be the church. And what does the Holy Spirit bring? The Holy Spirit brings power and purity and unity. It is the Holy Spirit that makes us the church. We can make a nice club. We can be good friends. We can do what lots of clubs do, you know, where it's, isn't it nice to be nice to the nice? That's one thing. That is not the church. We need the Holy Spirit. You and I have the same mandate that Jesus' first apostles had. We are to be his witnesses in our neighborhoods and wherever we find ourselves in the world. But we cannot be his witnesses without the Holy Spirit. Individually, each one of us needs to seek and to discover this. And you know, the funny thing is, is in chapter 2 of of the book of Acts, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And John Stott says the only thing that he can surmise is that people leak. (laughs) That we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and continually filled with the Holy Spirit to seek this in our own lives. Because here's the fact, we have clutter and lots of it. Our lives are filled with clutter. We collect things. You might think of yourself as a minimalist, but you're still probably collecting something. I remember, and I've told you this before, a man in Mozambique um, met me, and he says to me, his whole desire was to come to America. He had never been outside of Mozambique. And he says to me, is it true in America that you buy these big houses and you fill them with things, and when they get so full of things that you build little houses outside and you fill those with things? Yeah, that kind of does happen, doesn't it? And I was embarrassed to say yes to a man who makes $2 a day. We have so much stuff. We have so much stuff. We had to build little houses outside of our house to make places to put more stuff. We fill our lives with stuff, and that's oftentimes the wrong stuff. What then is the right stuff? That we would wait for the gift of the Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.